It's Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This is, of course, what the angel said to the shepherds who were out in the field in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, an angel shows up. And I don't know, you routinely in the Bible, when an angel shows up, the first thing the angel has to say before anything even can be heard is, Do not be afraid. Because apparently, Hallmark is really inaccurate with their little chubby infant floating, you know, overfed Caucasian baby angel things they got going on. I don't think that would be scary. But real angels apparently are terrifying. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Joy, the dictionary definition, is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. A feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Christian joy, specifically, is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness that's rooted in Christ. It flows from the Holy Spirit and it pervades all of life. I'll read it again. That's my definition of joy. Christian joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness rooted in Christ. It flows from the Holy Spirit and it pervades all of our lives. Notice that joy is a feeling, not a choice. I'm saying the opposite of what everyone else is saying on purpose because it's biblical. Joy is a feeling, not a choice. Choices, however, will directly and indirectly affect my joy. The verbal form of the word joy is rejoice. To rejoice, now that is a choice, that is an action. And I can choose to rejoice. Gratitude is also a feeling. But I can choose to give thanks. Awe, reverent awe, that's a feeling. But I can choose to worship. To call to mind the truths of the gospel, that's a choice. To pray is a choice. To meditate is a choice. And in all of these choices are likely to influence your soul toward joy. But joy is not an activity, it's a feeling. It's a feeling of deep pleasure and happiness that's rooted in Jesus, flows from the Holy Spirit, and pervades all of life. And God wants us to cultivate joy. He wants us to have joy. Joy is actually the the natural response to the gospel. If you just see the gospel correctly... If you just receive the gospel, you don't have to try to be joyful. If you just see Jesus clearly, the correct response is joy. And joy is foundational for a lot of other virtues that are normal and healthy for those of us who are rooted in Jesus. The kingdom's not about rules. It's about righteousness in Christ, peace with God, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. Joy is foundational psychologically to many other fruits of the Spirit, 
that it nourishes and encourages. Last night, I railed against my wife and kids over the state of the household and ended up having to apologize to every one of them. We kind of talked about it afterward when I was repenting as a relapse since I've been doing so well, working so hard at taking care of myself and exercising and being ta- spending time with Jesus and choosing thankfulness and gratitude and been doing a lot of things to cultivate a healthy heart. And last night I relapsed and Carrie said, I don't even want to go to church with you. And I said, well, I don't want to go to church with me either. And then she said, well, I'll take the baby and you can work on your sermon. I said, well, I sat in front of my sermon notes and it was all about joy. So I stared at the notes on the computer for a long time and typed nothing and said, I'm, I think I should probably just stand up in church and say, I don't think I should preach since I got nothing. This should come from a life, not information. But after I repented and felt forgiven, it seemed like I should go ahead with it anyways. <laughs> but when I mistreat my wife and kids by railing against them verbally, and I say, whoa, what just happened here? How did I get here? I was in such a great place. What happened? When I track it down psychologically to the moment where it began, I left the path of joy way before I ended up with the words. It's three steps back. I left the path of joy. So I chose instead of joy to walk down a path of entitlement. I deserve this and this. And that welcomed anger and resentment and then you begin to look for someone to blame and that gives root to an accusation and you hold on to those thoughts eventually it's going to lead to the feelings being deepened and action should be appropriate to, re- to remedy that and of course that leads to words that tear down and harm those around me words that grieve the Holy Spirit as well but it starts when I leave the path of joy And repentance, of course, does sometimes look like godly sorrow, but repentance definitely includes a return to joy. As I talked about a little bit last night, I was like, you know, I felt it all coming back on me. All the despair, all the depression, all the stress, all the pressure. I felt it all coming back on me. I think that's really interesting. We might talk about how feelings don't matter, but the truth is, the feeling we cultivate definitely matters. Joy, Christian joy, is a feeling of great pleasure and satisfaction in Christ that's flowing from the Holy Spirit, and it pervades all of life. Notice I include pervades all of life in my definition. Christian joy is not limited to the topics that we talk about in Sunday school, is it? It comes from Jesus, specifically, but as we cooperate with the Spirit of Jesus, as His mindset is cultivated in us, we begin to see God at work everywhere. We begin to see grace all over the place. We begin to see gifts. We begin to see blessings. We begin to see good things. We begin to see what went right today. We begin to see God at, God at work. Like woven, interwoven, carefully interwoven into the fabric of everything. Every moment. Life's hard. Life involves really hard things. But God's with us in everything. And the saints of all ages and all generations in their singing, in their praying, in their writing, they all say the same thing. No matter how bleak the circumstances, there's still joy for us in Jesus. Joy in sorrow. Joy in suffering. Joy in the hard times. 
Joy in the good times. Joy in boring times. Joy in work you don't like. Joy when people don't like you. Joy when life didn't give you what you expected when you were young. Joy when your kids grow up and leave the home. Joy when your kids don't turn out how you want. Joy when your grandkids aren't turning out how you want. Joy when your political candidate isn't voted into office. Joy when he is and it still didn't help. Joy when your spouse has died. Joy when your child has died. Joy after divorce. Joy at a funeral of a loved one who finished well. Joy in the midst of the deepest grief that humans are capable of. This is what the saints of all the ages have experienced with Jesus. And this is what they testify to as possible. We call Philippians the, the, you know, the, the, the joy epistle written from prison. With wounded backs. Older saints often say, joy is not the same as happiness. And I think the reason they say that so much is because they're trying to draw a distinction between the kind of happy pleasure you feel when you get like the latest snazzy new 4K TV and surround sound and you turn on the game for the first time and you're like, oh, that joy. That's not the same kind of joy, is it, that you get being deeply rooted and grounded in Abba's love and hearing his voice tell you things no one could say, no one could know, no one could speak to that depth of who you are. And the joy over the snazzy new TV, it fleed, it's fleeting and it fades quickly. In fact, it fades about as quickly as you see the price on that one that you paid 800 for. Now it's 399 and there's a newer, snazzier model that connects to Wi-Fi and you control from your phone and you're like, I just bought that six months ago. And I think that's what they're trying to say. Like new TV, you know, the saints that always say joy and happiness aren't the same. I think what they're trying to say is new TV happy is not what we're talking about when we talk about joy. We're talking about the kind of happy you feel in your soul when you've been hugely imperfect in service of God, but you've been sincere. And you've paid a lot of price to follow God's call on your life. And it's been so hard that you don't know if you can go on, but you still do. And God's presence starts to fall, though you didn't necessarily even do much to seek it. And you hear him whisper, thank you for persevering. We're so proud of you. You're still in the center of the path. You're still standing. And we're so pleased. Keep running. We humans are capable of experiencing emotional complexity. On the same day that I'm totally sad about one thing, I can also be thrilled to the point of jumping up and down about something else on the same day. Joy and sadness are not mutually exclusive in the same way that thankfulness and grumbling are. Like those two are mutually exclusive. Those don't work together. But joy and sadness can go together. Let me 
talk about the Greek word for joy just a little bit here. The Greek word for joy is kara, which I just spelled in the air, which was useless, but still fun. And the, so the Greek word for joy is kara. The Greek word for gift or grace is charis. Kara, joy. Charis, gift. That's really interesting. Same root word, in other words. So joy and grace, or joy and gift, are related. They're deeply related things. I find that really fascinating. So, <clears throat> let me, let's picture it like this. Little kids on Christmas morning are freaked out of their minds with, I'll go ahead and say it's joy. It's not Christian joy. It's not joy about Jesus, but it's definitely joy. Well, I hope it is. Sometimes it's the kind of frenetic, adrenaline-fueled uh, uh, selfishness that ends, to, ends in conflict and, and let's, let's keep going with the sermon, Tim. <clears throat> There's a couple different attitudes about the gift. One attitude about the gift can lead to, instead of, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, it can lead to Extra sadness, more sadness than if you hadn't got a gift. And anger at the person who gave it because it's not what you wanted. Entitlement is what I'm talking about. Entitlement leads to unmet expectations and resentment and deep discontentment. I wonder how many times in our lives... Hey, hi Erica, so good to see you. I wonder how many times in our lives, if we look at our despair and resentment and discontentment, we can trace it back to an attitude of entitlement. An entitlement attitude views life not as gift, but as wages. I did this, so I deserve this. And in reality, life doesn't work that way. Like, what did you do to earn getting your space here on the planet and breathing air? It just came to you. You were a gift, but life was a gift. Every moment is a gift. Every heartbeat is a gift. Every breath is a gift. And that awareness, that, that, that deep, like all Christian worship is actually rooted in this dual affirmation that it's good to exist and life is a gift. Those two affirmations, that's what all Christian worship, no matter, how, no matter else what it's about, Those are like concrete foundation blocks that it's sitting on. It's good that I exist and everything's a gift. Life is a gift every moment. Departure from that path. Notice in Romans chapter 1 the whole thing of um, God made himself known to everyone but instead of glorifying him as God and giving thanks they instead didn't consider the knowledge of God worth retaining. How do you retain the knowledge of God? It's good to exist in God's world. He's creator. And thank you, thank you, thank you. Everything is gift. Everything is grace. So life's not deserved. It's all given. It's all bonus. It's all Christmas bonus, so to speak. It's not wages. It's bonus. It's one big hilarious surprise. We've grown accustomed to experiencing so many millions of tiny miracles of grace per day that we've come to expect that they are going to continue to work that way. And when they don't, we're shocked by it. 
We're shocked by anything going wrong. Maybe not all of us are. Some of us are. I feel like maybe the, the, the gauge of how much awe and wonder and joy that we experience is how awake our eyes are to the gift around us in everything. The gifts around us. Joy is not, re- not identical to gratitude, but it's deeply related to gratitude. Gratitude, again, coming from the same root word of grace. At prayer meeting on Wednesday... Uh, Rusty and Linda were playing a, a, a CD with worship on it and the guy was saying, tell Jesus in your own words what he means to you. And I started to try. And in order to tell him what he means to me, I have to start thinking about what he means to me. And immediately I bumped up against the difficulty of putting into words what Jesus means to me. It's a deeply personal question, isn't it? We're not asking theologically, what do you believe about Jesus? We're asking, what does he mean to you? Who has he been in your experience? How have you known him? I don't know if any of us could put rightly into words what Jesus means to us because of the element of personal history that strikes such a deep chord that it's almost primal. There is a definite theology, but it's so much deeper than that. It's the storyline of our lives that he's been interwoven into, and we with him. It's the constant and consistent experience of how he is toward us in every season of life, through every change, through every victory or trial or struggle or sin or joy or mundane thing. God with us. Emmanuel. It's hard to express properly his kindness, his, his consistency, his reliability, the way he keeps his promises, the way he has our back, guides our steps, picks us back up, surprising things he whispers in our ear that we didn't make up. He's the most trustworthy person in your life. And tomorrow morning, or tomorrow some point, most of us are going to celebrate his birthday. Now, sometimes it's not intuitive to think about it as his birthday, since we're the ones getting all the presents, including him as the greatest gift ever given. But it's really his birthday nonetheless, not ours. I know, to us, a child is born. <laughs> Yay us, right? <laughs> but it's his birthday. And I've noticed about me, like if I, even though my desire is to serve him in everything, sometimes as I'm focused on serving him and pleasing him, my focus can become what I need to do that well. And in a really sneaky way, then the focus can shift from what he deserves to what I need to avoid his displeasure. (laughs) It's sneaky like that. How am I doing? What do I need? How can I stay on this path and please you, Father? 
Sometimes the fears and the weaknesses and the need for encouragement and the need for help, for perseverance, what I need can, can almost displace in my mindset the central hub of being there for him, giving him a gift. But it's his birthday, so let's think about him for a second. In the growth process from merely human to divine love, the one I've talked about in here so many times, we start with love of self for the sake of self. We graduate to love of God for the sake of self. It's a start. At some point, we transition more fully into love of God for the sake of God. And then when that is complete, we regard everything and everyone through that lens, even ourselves. We can love ourselves for the sake of God. But that transition from love of God for the sake of self to love of God for the sake of God is a major change that's probably imperceptible to us since we're, none of us are very self-aware. But I suspect it's very perceptible to God. That shift, when we become less self-aware, changes a central hub of our mindset from what do I need to serve him well to this? What gift in this circumstance can I give him, even if it's costly? You ever wondered about those wise men? They see a star and they like, they know that that particular star actually means something, that it's not just another star. I don't, I look at the stars and I think about how huge the universe is. You know what I mean? I'm like, wow, I could live a thousand lifetimes and not reach that star if we were traveling at the speed of light. That's crazy. The universe is huge and we're very small. That's what I think. But they looked at the star and said, that one wasn't there before. (gasps) This means something. God's talking to us. Hey boys, time to go on a long road trip. Make sure you bring everything that you own that's really expensive because we're going to have to give gold, frankincense, and myrrh to the king that the star clearly is talking about. I mean, at that point, you'd have a hard, those guys would have had a hard time. They'd have probably sold me real estate in Florida on a timeshare quicker than they sold me on that thing. That's all I'm saying. Because I don't know what the heck they're talking about with the stars and the Messiah and, and I don't have any gold. So, But I love their attitude of let's, let's give him a gift. That's their impulse. It's like their gut reaction. Oh, the king, the king. Give him the best. Give him a gift. So what if our central mindset hub was What gift can I give you, Jesus, even if it's costly in the middle of the circumstance, instead of what do I need, what do I need in this circumstance? Worship team can go ahead and come on up, and let's time to redistribute the candles, and here's your closing thought. Let's take a few moments and pray real quick. What about you? What does Jesus mean to you? And could we take maybe 30 seconds and in your heart, in your own words, tell him what he means to you.